Apollo Windows and Doors of Wisconsin has six lines to fit your style and financing to fit any budget. Through November 30th, choose 12 months, no payments and no interest, plus 20% off installation. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. You know, one of the things that we... On this program and on so many of the newscasts and all, you, you hear conversations about some of the real big picture stuff. We, you know, we, we talk about some of the larger issues, the Voting Rights Act and things like that. And we, we talk about the Build Back a Better, Better America Act and things like that. The truth is there's a lot of stuff and a lot of work that gets done in Washington that in some respects flies under the radar screen. And in that regard, Congressman Glenn Grothman from the 6th Congressional District here in Wisconsin has been a really busy guy over the course of the last several days. Congressman, uh, good morning, good afternoon, and Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas. Sounds good to say that, doesn't it? It does. It does. Hey, let's talk about a couple things that might have been sort of flying under the radar screen with all the stuff that's going on in Washington. You've introduced something called the Insulin Cost Reduction Act. What What is that, and, and why is that such a big deal if it passes? Well, um, what we're trying to do is, you know, Right now, the drug companies are waking, making way more on insulin than they should. There are insulin substitutes that are being held up right now that should be getting to market. They are bottled up in the regulatory agencies, and it's not impossible to find people paying five, six, seven hundred dollars a month for insulin. You know, can you imagine if you have a child who has juvenile diabetes and you have to pay that month every month? So, if the uh, if we kind of get the drug companies out of delaying the process, we think we can get insulin substitutes to the market quicker. And if we get them quicker, we can save families one, two, three hundred dollars a month. This sounds like the type of thing that, to me, that, that should have bipartisan support. Do you think it will? Well, it we we began to try it last year, and it, it's very difficult to get something through Congress that has opposition. And on a wide variety of issues, the drug companies are just way too powerful. Now, the Democrats say they want to do something in this area. Actually, they are trying to do something on the Build Back Better bill, but uh, that may or may not pass. This would be a good free market thing to do because one of the things right now that does go on in Washington is we believe the drug companies will step in and sometimes prevent cheaper substitutes from getting to market. Interesting. Now, we just made a reference to the Build Back Better bill, which is, at least right now, it's on hold and maybe life support in the U.S. Senate. But there's an aspect of Build Back Better that's gotten almost no attention that I know you're concerned with, which is possibly the loss of employment for individuals with disabilities. Right. And what we're going to do here is I assume most of your listeners are aware that there are people who have different abilities than other people who sometimes have to work for somewhere for under minimum wage. I'm trying to think of places like that in your listening area. Threshold of West Bend, RSC of Sheboygan, um, 
Opportunities Inc. of Oconwoc or Brook Industries of Fondlake. These are places with people, maybe they have spina bifida, some other sort of uh, handicap, but they are able to work. And if you ever have a chance to tour them, it's quite frankly one of the most enjoyable things I do because you have people who've been dealt a tough lot in life, but they are being productive members of society. They are earning a paycheck. Usually that paycheck has to be supplemented by some sort of governmental assistance, but maybe you're making four or five or $6 an hour, and you go to work just like your siblings do, uh, just like other people do, you wind up making lifelong friends. And one of the concerns historically for folks like that is will they have any friends other than just their parents or immediate family? But you wind up making lifelong friends and get the satisfaction of a paycheck. In this Build Back Better bill, and it's received a lot of attention for its spending level, a lot of attention for its 87,000 IRS agents, a lot of its attention for you know, taking care of the, uh, all the controversial uh, um, immigration stuff in there. Mm-hmm. But the Democrats are paying states to phase out to get rid of these uh, what they call 14 certificates, which is what you have to work under if you're going to make less than minimum wage. When this has been tried in other places, some people are able to find jobs. But frequently, the jobs are four- or five-hour-a-week jobs or two-hour-a-week jobs, not 35-hour-a-week jobs. So it's a big step back for a lot of folks, and it is a dream of some Democrats. I think other Democrats are unaware what's in this bill being a, a bill of, you know, so many pages. But it's been a dream of the Democrats to say nobody should be able to work for under minimum wage. And, of course, to operate these facilities, you have to be working for under minimum mm-hmm. wage. And they feel that people are being segregated because they're working with other people who have different abilities. My opinion, first of all, having toured so many of these places, it would be a tragedy if they shut down. And secondly, these people with different abilities should have the right, like everybody else, to work where they want. And if they are happy working somewhere for 30 hours a week for $5 an hour, they should have that right. Uh, They are not losing out on something, in my opinion, by working with other people with disabilities. First of all, there are people with all sorts of abilities working in these places. And secondly, they are given an opportunity for the socialization and to have friends that sometimes last for 30 or 40 years. The idea that a a threshold of West Bend, say, um, or of Brook Industries of Fond du Lac, the idea that those things would be shut down after being in existence for dozens of years is horrific. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't made the press because I think unless you are one of these folks or maybe are a relative of one of these folks, you do not know what's going on. And all of a sudden, if this bill gets signed, even if it's signed in a watered-down version, you know, we'll say uh, Mansion cuts half the spending out of the Build Back Better bill or three-quarters of the spending. This provision may be left in there, and it will totally, in my mind, be so devastating for people who are working with disabilities. And they are so happy in these facilities now. The idea that someone, say, working at threshold for 35 hours a week, all of a sudden is going to work for four hours a week somewhere in the in the community, if they can find that, would just be a tragedy. You know, Glenn, it's interesting because as you were talking, I was thinking, I, I have, I mean, I personally know 
multiple families who have children that are in that situation and both the kids and the, the parents all think of it's a godsend it's their 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 child would not be able to hold down what I'm going to call a quote unquote regular job that would but these types of facilities provide them with meaningful work and it, like you were saying an opportunity to socialize and a chance to have that value that comes with working and it would be absolutely devastating if if they weren't able to operate and do these things because it, it's about more than just the money it's about all the other values that come with getting up in the morning and having a place to go and a job to do Absolutely. And if they get rid of them, a lot of them will spend time in day services, watching TV. They will lose the value of pride they get from earning their own paycheck and spending their own money. Uh, it just would be a horrible tragedy for these folks. And I'm not sure. I'm sure the average person doesn't know what's in there. I talked to Democrats who voted for this bill back better out of the House, and I would bet at least a third of them did not know it was in there. Mm -hmm. And the people who did know it was in here frequently don't know how good and beneficial these agencies are. Everybody, every politician, we have any assemblyman or state senators out there listening, every politician should make a point of touring these facilities. Most in Wisconsin, most counties have at least one. You know, Sheboygan, Fond du Lac, Washington, uh, Waukesha all have some facilities like this. And it makes you feel good because you have people who have been dealt with a lot of people would think is a tough lot in life. But they are so happy to be working where they are. And they don't have to work there. Nobody forces them to work there. But they work there of choice. And uh, it would be such a dramatic um, dramatic change in lifestyle uh if we if we if we pass this bill with this provision in it earlier this week you also signed on as a co-sponsor of something called the upholding the law at our border act what what is that all about well right now you know there's a lot of information we don't have as far as what's going on down there uh in part i could say maybe it's being suppressed we want the inspector general which in essence is the auditor for the for the federal government to report back exactly how many people are coming in here how many people are kicked out how many people with um criminal records Records are being kept out and how many we're holding on to. One of the difficult things here is in some ways the Biden administration has been uh, somewhat uh, opaque when it comes to letting the public know, uh, you know, exactly what's going on at the border. We know it's bad. I've been down there. One anecdote I like to repeat is last time I was down there. You walk along a path where people uh, go to check in with the Border Patrol and come here. It's littered with photo IDs. <laughs> okay. I mean, unbelievable. It'd be like you walked down Wisconsin Avenue and all of a sudden saw people throwing away a bunch of driver's licenses on the ground. So you have to ask yourself if people are, who are coming here are throwing away their photo ID from Venezuela or Guatemala or whatever, you have to ask yourself, who are we getting here? Mm -hmm. What type of person throws away their photo ID before they check it? Answer, somebody who wants to establish a new identity. Why do you want to establish a new identity? Well, we don't want people, they apparently don't want the Border Patrol doing a background check on whether you committed crimes last time in the United States or insofar as we can do a background check on what you did in other places around the world. They don't want that happening either. So we want all of this information. And right now, we are not getting that information. We feel we have to require the uh, inspector general, 
who, after all, works for the administration or, you know, works under the executive branch and require them to give us more information because we feel the more information we get, the better we'll be able to alarm the rest of the public as to what is going on down there. And, uh, you know, we don't like to talk about the border every day because it seems like it's getting old. But we should talk about the border every day because every day thousands of people are coming here who we don't necessarily want. And we've shown in the past we very rarely evict anybody. Uh, Glenn, let's talk about one of the one of the issues that that is, of course, top of the fold every day in the papers. That is the January sixth uh, commission. I had Senator Johnson on yesterday, and my question to him was, "Is this a witch hunt? What do you think?" Let me ask you that same question: the January sixth commission. What do you think? I'll tell you what I'd like. I was one of three congressmen to sign a letter. We still haven't gotten a response requiring the administration to forward all of the videos of what was going on in the Capitol that day. And the fact that they are trying to make such a big deal out of this, and now we're, what, 11 months past it, and we still have not released all the videos as to what is going on, I'd like to know. You know, there are questions about people who are still being currently held. Well, let's see what these people did who are currently being held. Let's see what people did who... Um, were charged and convicted of crimes. Let's see exactly who recognizes people wandering around the Capitol that day. And as long as the administration does not give us these videos, there's always going to be suspicion. It's like, what are we holding on to? What secrets are we trying to keep? And I've had Democrats ask the same thing because they wonder if there's going to be evidence of collusion, that sort of thing, with people getting in the building. And, you know, given we're having this huge committee and all the time and money we're, you know, uh, it's being spent so far, and we don't have the videos of all that was going on down there, is somewhat scandalous. So that's where I've decided to put my focus. You know, I was on there with Congressman Norman of South Carolina and Congressman Gohmert of Texas, and the three of us, you know, we get back, we're just going to have to try to get a little bit more press on this and see if the national media will put enough pressure on Nancy Pelosi and the Biden administration to release these videos, because I think if they did, we would find out very quickly answers to our questions. One final question before I let you go. The um, with, with the Build Back Better bill, at least... On, on hold right now in, in the Senate it appears that they're they're trying to pivot to the, the essentially nationalizing voting the, the voting the so-called new voting rights act I don't know that that's going to go anywhere but would that be a good idea if all of a sudden the federal government would set the rules for individual states regarding voting well no and particularly because the type of rules they want set they want uniform or more absentee voting. And Jeff, years ago when I was in the state legislature, I fought this. When you have absentee voting, and there are states where over 85% of their ballots were cast absentee, you never know for sure who really filled out the ballot, and you don't know if that person was coached. I remember when you vote, you go behind, you even pull a curtain behind you, and nobody knows who how you voted. Your own spouse doesn't know how you voted, which is the way it should be. They want uh, uniform ballots where you can come up to somebody's house and say, oh, by the way, have you voted yet? Let me help you fill it out. That would be a disaster. It's a recipe for cheating. And the idea that Democrats try to do that, I think, is appalling. We should not 
we should not have a repeat of last time in which some states had over 85% absentee ballots. Congressman Gunn Grothman, thanks for spending some time with us today. You have a very happy holiday season. Look forward to talking to you sometime soon in the new year. Merry Christmas, Jeff. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Glenn. Take care. That is Congressman Glenn Grothman. Um, for, for those of you who don't know, um, Glenn, um, Glenn and I go back a long way. Glenn was a graduate of Homestead High School. I was a graduate of Nicolet High School, and we used to we used to be on our respective debate teams back in back in the day. So it's always a pleasure to talk to um, an old friend from the past who is in Washington D.C. And Glenn is um, Glenn's an interesting guy, and I, I think he is what I would describe as a as a very principled and uh, common sense sort of conservative. We don't agree on all the issues, but I think uh, you can always guarantee that you're going to get a well considered view of issues when you know Glenn Grothman takes a look at it. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Please join Good Karma Brand, 620 WTMJ and 3rd Street Market Hall for a United for Waukesha charity event next Wednesday, December 22nd. Your $100 ticket includes food samples from the future 3rd Street Market Hall vendors, steak from Carnivore, and two drink tickets for the bar. Plus, former Brewers All-Star catcher Jonathan LaCroix will be in attendance. The event will take place on December 22nd from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. with 100% of the proceeds benefiting those affected by the tragedy this year's Waukesha Christmas Parade. For tickets or additional information, text the word TICKET, T-I-C-K-E-T, to the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, very, very cool. Here, here's, um, you know, it, it's sort of interesting when we talk about this Third Street Market. For, for those of you who aren't familiar with this, and I mentioned this the other day, we, that is WTMJ Radio, together with some of our, our sister radio stations, the ESPN station and The Truth, we are going to be relocating from our, our home here on, on Capitol Drive, where it's been, we've been here, I think, since inception of WTMJ, we're going to be relocating downtown to the um, what, what used to be the, the Grand Avenue, um, and it's been a redesigned space, and I don't exactly know when the move is going to take place. I do know the radio studios, the way they're designed, as it's been explained to me, is there will be glassed-in booths so people can come in and uh, go to the food hall and things like that. You can actually watch us all doing our, our shows, sort of like the setup they have at State Fair. So um, this event is going to be in that space. Now, the studios aren't there. Our space isn't done. We're probably not going to be moving, at least the at least the broadcast facilities probably aren't going to be moving till late next summer. That's the latest example I had. But it's really an effort to kind of revitalize that whole area, and I think a lot of people are very excited about it. And if you want to get a head start and see what it's going to look like, well, you can participate in this event next Wednesday night, December 22nd. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Well, Mike Spaulding, I've got good news and bad news. Let me give you the bad news first, okay? Yep. All right. The Dow Jones Industrial Average right now down 361 points. Okay, that's the bad news. Good news? Good news is when the stock market opened up, it was down 620 points. So it's actually made a 260-point comeback. So that's kind of the glass is half full, half empty thing. Dow down big today. But it has been worse. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 
This weekend is your first chance to hear the brand new WTMJ Holiday Radio Show, It's a Wonderful Career, starring our teammate, friend, and colleague, Gene Miller, and the WTMJ players, plus surprise visits from some of your favorite personalities around the Badger State. Tune in tomorrow at 4 p.m. and Sunday at 9 p.m. for the WTMJ Holiday Radio Show, It's a Wonderful Career, sponsored by Gruber Law Offices, Drake & Associates, and Dave Drake Camp Heating, and benefiting Capco's Kids to Kids Toy Drive. All right, so let's put this in perspective. World War One started in Europe in 1914. The United States became involved in World War One in April of 1917. So that that's the framework. My question to Mike Spaulding was, how many mayors has the city of Milwaukee had since um, World War One? And he first said five and then backtracked, said, okay, well, no, that is, it's more than a hundred years. He said, I guess, I guess nine. Well, actually, he was very close because the answer, the answer is eight. Um, Daniel Hone was the mayor of Milwaukee from 1916. So he was the, he became the mayor when World War I was already being fought in Europe, but he was the mayor when the U.S. got involved in 1917. Daniel Hone served as the mayor of Milwaukee until 1940, so that's one. In 1940, Carl Zeidler became the mayor. He resigned um, in April of 1942 to fight in World War II, and he, he was killed, so that's mayor number two. John Bonn, was um, the interim mayor beginning in 1942, and he served um, until um, 1948. He was elected in 44, served a term until 48. So that's three. Frank Zeidler, the socialist mayor of Milwaukee, he was elected in 1948, and he served until 1960. So that's four. Henry Meyer, was elected in April of 1960. He served 28 years. Henry Meyer was the mayor of Milwaukee until April of 1998, 1988. So that's five. After Henry Meyer, John Norquist. John Norquist took over in April of 1988. He served until 2004 when he resigned um, to move to Chicago and head to the the Congress for New Urbanism. So that's six. Marvin Pratt took over in January of 2004. He served until April of 2004. So he served four months as acting mayor. So that's um, seven. And then Tom Barrett took over in 2004. So that's that's eight mayors. Eight mayors, and of course, of those eight in the last hundred plus years, um, Marvin Pratt only served for four months, and Carl Zeidler served for two years before he resigned to go fight in World War II. So, for essentially, you know, if you take all out those that one term mayor and the four months that Marvin Pratt was there, you really have essentially six mayors that have, have served Milwaukee over the course of the last century. It, it is just. It's staggering to me the fact that you you have no turnover in these jobs. And so that's why it's such a big deal that Tom Barrett will 
sometime in the very, very near future. He has now been confirmed as the U.S. ambassador to Luxembourg, and, and he will be stepping down after having served 17 years as, as mayor, uh, essentially. So he's going to be stepping down. And again, his, his term, that, that appears to be kind of like the, what the normal is. I mean, John Norquist, John Norquist was the mayor for 16 years. Before that, Henry Meyer was the mayor for 28 years. Frank Zeidler was the mayor for 12 years. So when, when you get to be, mayor the job isn't mayor for life but it's mayor for a heck of a long time and tom barrett has been the mayor like i say since april of 2004 think back i mean just think back on all the different things that have happened in the world since since 2004 i mean 17 years is in some respects i think for some of us you say it just goes by in the blink of an eye but in other respects it it's just an incredibly long time. Lots of people come and go. Lots of issues come and go. And now Tom Barrett is going to be going. You know, he says he's not running away from Milwaukee. He's running into some other job. Fair enough. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here is my question. Assign a letter grade to the Barrett tenure as, as mayor. Was he an A-grade mayor, a B-grade mayor, a C-grade mayor, a D-grade mayor, a failure as a mayor? What do you think? What is his legacy going to be? How is he going to be remembered? And how would you grade the term that Tom Barrett has served? Long time, 17 years. 855-616-1620. Tell you where I come down on this, and we will discuss in a couple minutes. Your grade for Tom Barrett as he leaves from being the mayor of Milwaukee. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, it's tough to look back over a, in this case, I mean, Tom Barrett has been the mayor since 2004. So you're talking, you know, you're, you're talking 17 plus years. And over the course of that, you know, normally you would expect that there's, you could point to sort of all sorts of good stuff that was done and bad stuff, and, and how does this all come out? Interestingly, at least from our text line so far, there's sort of a consensus as to what is sinking in with Barrett. I mean, for example, when you think about John Norquist, you say, okay, what did John Norquist accomplish? Well, I mean, I think what people will remember from the, the public John Norquist, of course, was the, the sort of the war on freeways. You know, he was the guy that presided over the tearing down of the Park East Freeway, and he was all about, like, the neighborhoods and things like that. And, and, and that's, I mean, that was his concept of new urbanism, and it was something that agree with him or disagree with him. You know, he, he went out, and that was the driving vision. Um, Tom Barrett? I don't know. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let me give you a sample of some of the texts we're getting. Jeff, I'd give Tom Barrett a C grade. I think he was kind of a total meh. Didn't do anything great, but he didn't blow up the city either. David says, I've met him numerous times over the years, even at cops. He's a nice man. However, as a leader, I think he's milk toast. I'd give him a C minus. Doug says, I'd give him a C. Nothing spectacular, nothing terrible. I remember him most for when he got into that fight going after the mugger outside of state fair. Jeff, um, I'd give him a B minus. I would have rated him a little higher, but his treatment of police chief Morales dropped it down. 
Uh, Ray from Illinois says, from the outside looking in, I'd give him a grade of C. While there's been some great developments in the downtown area, and while he did get the Democratic National Convention to come here, although it didn't really happen because of COVID, the high crime rate and the trolley folly, that takes him down in my opinion. Um, and then we have another text. Uh, I'd give him an F, and he should take the trolley car with him. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My, my grade? It would be, I'm sort of with the vast majority so far of the texters. I would say it's about, it's about a C. On the one hand, if we want to look at the positive stuff, there has been a lot of development in downtown Milwaukee. And I, I think, you know, you can point to Pfizer Forum. You can, it took a long time, but you finally got the land around Pfizer Forum that was cleared when they took down the Parkies Freeway. That's now starting to develop. You've got lots of stuff that's going on the east side. I, I mean, I think downtown and maybe some of the areas in the immediate surrounding vicinity, the third, the third ward, fifth ward, th- those I think have seen a lot of development. At the same time, outside of that downtown area, there's been little or no progress, I, I believe, in the vast majority of the city of Milwaukee. So I think it's fair to give Barrett credit for some of what I'll describe as a revitalization of downtown. But it's also fair to say there's been very, very little spillover in 17 years. So I, I think that that's fair. I think that to the extent it is fair to hold an urban mayor responsible for crime rates. Well, I, I don't look. Tom Barrett's not the guy that's going out and carjacking people or stealing cars. Um, and I understand that crime is caused by a lot of issues, but the crime rate is out of control in Milwaukee, and it's very apparent, or it's, at least I believe it's been apparent to me, that you know he he doesn't have any ideas as to how to deal with it. And it's not like the mayor, I appreciate, can just sort of like wave a, a magic wand and, and deal with these things. But I think it's not like he has used that bully pulpit to call out whether it's a failed criminal justice system. I, I think, you know, the the mess that the Fire and Police Commission has been for the last several years, up until maybe immediately the last few months, I, I think a lot of that falls on, on the mayor for a number of reasons. And in my opinion, I, I mean, you know how I feel about that the trolley. I think that the, the trolley is going to go down as his legacy, and it is my prediction, I guess I could be wrong, but when Barrett leaves, I, I think any impetus to spend a hundred million dollars or five hundred million dollars to expand the trolley. I just don't think I don't think there's any political capital out about that. I I just I don't see any massive trolley expansion expansion coming. And I think the the trolley, the streetcar, is going to go down as again one of these sort of failed white elephants, and that, I think, could very well be Tom Barrett's legacy. But I give him a C. At the same time, the, the city of Milwaukee has not cratered. It, it has, And that's that's the case. There are problems in part of the city, um, but other parts are, are doing well. And I guess I look at Barrett more as a placeholder for the last 17 years necessarily than somebody that had all these great inventive ideas and has revitalized the city. I I don't know that I think that's the case. Could he have done better? Yes. Could he have done worse? Yeah. Lucy on the west side. Lucy, what's your grade for Tom Barrett? Um, Mine's a B plus. I think you're you're really good at pointing out everything that Barrett might have done better, but you, you left out a huge thing, and that's the Menominee River um, development. That's not downtown. I mean, the, the amount of jobs created 
that place was a total wasteland when he took over. And, I mean, Northwest had started the process of getting the property away from the railroad, but the development there has just been remarkable. And the other thing that he did, I mean, he did everything he's had to do in the face of unrelenting hostility from the state. The state keeps not only taking money away from Milwaukee, but hobbling what we can do. We had one of the best, you know, controls over absentee landlords. The state legislature wiped all of that out. I mean, Tom Barrett can't control that, took away a lot of local control, but he's continued anyway to do what he can where he can. Um, I said B plus instead of A because I will have to agree with you that he had two 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 places he really missed. One was the police and fire commission, and people have already talked about that. But the health department, um, when when he he fired Seth Boldy when he first started and installed Bevan Baker, and we're still paying for that. Now, to his credit, we have a wonderful person now running the health department. But that's that's my view. And I live in the neighborhoods, and I hear all the criticism about Barrett only cares about downtown. But, you know, it's downtown that generates all the property taxes for people to, to do things in the city. I own a property on the west side, which I live in, and I have a rental property on the east side. And it's just the difference is remarkable in terms of, of assessments and taxes. Got it. Okay, thanks for calling. I'm, I'm, my, my purpose isn't to argue. Um, I, I just, I think when you look at a lot of the city, the vast majority of the city, whether it's the area out by North Ridge or certainly the the south side and the north side in particular, there's a lot of people who look and say, okay, it's wonderful that we've seen all this stuff in parts of the city. And I understand what you're talking about with the Menominee River. But but I, I think that the just sort of like Atlantic City, when they brought in the casinos and you had this development on the boardwalk, well, there, there was almost no spillover. I think there has largely been very, very little spillover for a lot of the city. All right, let's go back here. Jeff, what have you been smoking? All of the positives you listed tied to Tom Barrett would have happened despite his leadership. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know. Jeff, the mayor had nothing to do with Fiserv. He deserves no credit for it. This was a product of Chris Abley and Scott Walker. He was not involved. His silence on the state of MPS has been stunning. I'd give him a D minus. Now, of course, the, the mayor, you know, doesn't control the public school system, but it's, it's true that the mayor, I think, has, has not been aggressive about I don't know, pushing for changes and, again, using that bully pulpit that we have talked about. Jeff, I think he should have put pressure on judges and district attorneys with all the crime in the city. It is very clear to me, at least in my opinion, that the mayor is kind of punched out on the issue of crime. And, and that's he, he is, I'm sure, as appalled by it as, as anybody is. But I don't think they have any. I think he's run out of ideas on it. And that's why, in some respects, I think it's always good to get new leadership and a new look in for these types of things. Jeff, regarding Barrett, the taxpayer money for the streetcar, insane. D plus, and I give that even though I thoroughly hate Donald Trump. Um, Jeff, I'd give him a C grade. Well, you can decide. But again, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the mayoral election that will probably occur in the spring, because if history is any indicator, whoever wins is going to be there for a long time. 
Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. All right, it turns out, despite denials from the Biden administration, that $450,000 number was correct. You will remember, a couple months ago, the Wall Street Journal reported that the Biden administration, through the Justice Department, was considering reaching a settlement where families who came into the country illegally and were subsequently separated could be paid up to $450,000 per child. Well, initially, the Biden Joe Biden was asked about this, and he says, not going to happen, and denied knowing this. Well, it turns out that that was, in fact, the case, and that was what's negotiated, and that continues to be what's on the table. Let me give you the background of this. You will remember, perhaps, in 2018, in an effort to try to stop crossings at the border, the Trump administration implemented a zero-tolerance approach. What that meant is that everyone who was apprehended crossing the border illegally was going to be detained. And what happened is if you came into this country illegally as an adult and you brought your children with you, well, the idea was that you, know, you can't you, you can't put the the children in, in jails. So what happened was the parents and the kids were, were separated for a period of time while the parents' cases were worked out. And in many cases, the parents would be returned to Mexico and the idea or wherever, and the idea would be that the children would be sent with them. But the parents were separated because the places where you were going to hold the parents were not suitable for where you held the children. Okay, so that that was the overall policy. The ACLU has decided that they now want to litigate that. And on behalf of the several thousand families who came into this country illegally and had their kids separated for a period of time, they have filed a lawsuit. And the lawsuit's been, I guess, going through the negotiation phase. And the number that the ACLU has settled on is they want taxpayers, they want you and me, to pay up to $450,000 per child for all the kids who were separated because mom and dad decided to bring them across the border illegally. Um, that, that number, which, like I say, was originally kind of poo-poo, no, this isn't the case. Well, th- that number is a very real number. And the story today in the Washington Post is that the attorneys for the people brought into the country illegally, that's that they're, that's the number that they're stuck on. And despite the fact that President Biden has called the possibility of this being garbage, he then later said, well, I am open to um, cash settlements. Apparently what's happened is the, these talks are over. They're reactivating the lawsuits because the ACLU does want $450,000 per child that was brought into the country illegally and was subsequently separated from mom and dad. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Some families were separated for days or months. Some parents were deported without their children. Um, they, they estimate, like I say, during the whole of this, it was about like over 5,000 people. So it, it varies from person to person. But in some cases, parents were deported. The kids stayed in this country and they were placed with foster homes or in some cases sent back. But 
mom and dad come into this country illegally, and they're what caused this. So let's tee this up, 855-616-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should the taxpayers be paying families who came into this country illegally and then subsequently had their children separated from them and detained separately, and in some cases, maybe if they were deported, then maybe turned over to foster care. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Maybe this is overly simplistic for me, but I, this to me, this is a complete and total non-starter. You know, from the perspective of the parents, where does this whole thing start? Well, it starts with mom and dad making the decision that they are going to come into this country illegally in the first place. And that's what sets the whole ball rolling. I don't think the taxpayers have any liability for this policy. And candidly, this would have been something that if if mom and dad had made arrangements to come in legally, none of this would have happened. But the idea of $450,000 per child, the idea of $100,000 per child, the idea of $10,000 per child, I I think is a complete and total non-starter. 855-616-1620. What do you think? You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. You know, see, the interesting part of this story is this is one of these things. We, we had Congress, Congressman Glenn Grothman on in the first hour of the program, and we were talking about something. He said, "Well, with regard to the January sixth riots at the Capitol, he said, you know, we're, we're trying to get released." All the the film footage of of what went on at the Capitol and the Biden administration won't release it. And he said, I, he said that's, that's one of my things. I, I think the Biden administration, his word was being opaque, opaque about this. You know, it's let, let's let's have some degree of transparency. Well, this is another one of these examples. Apparently, the Biden Justice Department had been negotiating with the ACLU to pay up to four hundred fifty thousand dollars to each each family of a child who might have been separated from the parents when the parents came into this country illegally. You know, if this went through, it would have been over a billion dollars in, in all likelihood. And then the Wall Street Journal found out about it. They publicized it. Biden comes out and says, it's garbage. Hey, it's garbage. And, we, you know, that's not going on. Well, apparently it was going on. Nobody told the president that this was apparently happening. And this is now, this is the number that, for example, the ACLU is stuck on. The Washington Post is saying, yeah, these negotiations have now stopped because they want $450,000 for all the families who have been separated. Why were they separated? Mom and dad came into the country illegally and mom and dad were being detained, but where mom and dad were being detained, you couldn't hold the, the kids. So the kids had to get separated. The vast majority of the families have been now reunified, uh, but $450,000, 855-616-1620. Jeff, regarding the payment for illegal immigrants, blank no. And by the way, I'm as liberal as they come, but even I can't behind the, get behind this. It's ridiculous. Jeff, no way should these payments be made. The people came illegally. And they come from countries where kids are often sent by themselves over the border so the American taxpayers can support them as well. Jeff, 450000 is outrageous. No money at all. Um, I like the ACLU, but this is absolutely brainless. They impose themselves on us. We have no obligation to pay them anything. 
Jeff, I think this is complete BS. If people in this country do not believe now that the left's entire purpose is to redistribute wealth and make any person who has a cause wealthy beyond um, reason, they are absolutely naive. I mean, this this to me is just, again, it, it's... It's crazy when when you look at this. It's one of these examples of how you violate the law and you can make yourself a, a millionaire. Look, I, I I understand, and you might want to go back and I, I think maybe you say, okay, well, the policy of separating the families it, was that the best policy? I don't know, but on the other hand, you know, they're trying to stop illegal immigration, so it's short of. If we don't have the facilities to hold mom and dad together with the kids, you know, what, what is, what is the option? Is the option then you just turn people loose into this country knowing that the chances of showing up for whatever hearings or deportation, deportation hearing or whatever are slim to none and slim is on a bus out of town? No, I mean, that, that's what they had to do. You couldn't put mom and dad together with the kids. They had to be separated. And, and maybe that was something I would argue that mom and dad should have thought of before they made the decision to come into this country illegally and bring their children along. Peggy in Mequon. Hi, Peggy. You're on WTMJ. Well, I have sort of the same feeling, that we continue to reward people for bad behavior. So parents have the ability to follow the law, try and bring their children into our country legally, which we all welcome. Immigration is the backbone of our country. But when you do something illegal, you shouldn't be rewarded for it. We, we do that with welfare. If, if you have a child out of wedlock, and people do, and we should help our fellow man, then perhaps you receive aid, aid to families with dependent children. So, but if you have two or three or four children, we shouldn't reward that behavior. You should get half as much or a quarter as much or nothing because we continue in our country to reward parents who are behaving poorly. Yeah, well, and th- thanks, thanks for call, Peggy. I mean, I think that's look. I I get what's going on here, and I, I understand that you know people who are coming to this country are coming in, and and whether they're coming in illegally or where they decide, okay, we're we're going to demand asylum and things like that. Well, the the point is, you cannot be just simply released. You know, you, you have to be detained. And in this case, the vast majority of people who came in had no legitimate sort of asylum claims. So they end up coming in here that we don't have a place to house them with their children. So there's no other alternative other than, you know, to, to separate them. It's, well, this is an imperfect sort of analogy, but it's kind of like, okay, um, dad gets caught for driving drunk and gets arrested and there's a couple kids in the back of the car. Well, you're not going to take the kids to jail and put them in jail with dad. You're, you're not going to detain them together. You have to separate the, the children. And it's an imperfect analogy. But the, the problem is the entire ball was started rolling by the decision of mom and dad to come into this country illegally. And that then started, even with the asylum claim, that then starts the, this ball rolling. And you have to recognize when you make the decision to do that and you bring your kids along, there are going to be consequences for that decision. But the bigger picture is, even if we were talking about some form of settlement, I think I'd probably oppose it intellectually, but even if we were talking about some form of settlement, four, $450,000 Per child, let's we're going to make essentially you know millionaires if there's three or four kids involved for people who decided to cross the border without permission. 
I mean, really? Where, where do people think that this is going and where do they people think this, you know, money is going to come from? And as, as far as the president, I mean, again, I don't know. Going back to, you know, where he said, well, this is just garbage. You know, you, you wonder, was he clueless? Was he fibbing? Was it some factor of that? Because apparently this was, in fact, the number that the people suing the government have, in fact, settled on. And now that the government has decided that they're not going to be able to pay $450,000 because the political ramifications of this would be huge. If you think that there is going to be likely to be a red wave in November of 2022, the way things stand now, can you imagine can you imagine all those Democrats running for re-election in, in closely held districts if they have to go out and defend payments of hundreds of thousands of dollars to people who entered this country illegally? If nothing else, you want to talk about the political nightmare that that would impose. You've got that as well. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. You know who really misses Donald Trump? Maybe, you know, maybe you do. But you know who really misses Donald Trump? It would be the mainstream media, the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, etc. Because just as many of us predicted, the fact that Donald Trump is gone has had a huge impact on the bottom line. Story um, in the Wall Street Journal about the Washington Post. Here, here's the deal. Apparently, um, in, in 2019 sort of the, the height of, of the Trump era, nearly all of the 50 most popular articles on the Washington Post's homepage were related to politics, almost all related to Donald Trump. Same period, 2021, just three of the top 10 were related to politics. So it goes from almost 100% down to 30%. And what they are finding, and they're acknowledging at the Washington Post, that there's this huge Again, drop-off that's out there. There was an audience surge during the Trump years when readers flocked to stories about, you know, Donald Trump, et cetera, et cetera. But now, now the Trump is gone. The, the, the stories have and the readership has, has dropped off. The clicks have dropped off. This is why if you ever wonder why you, you pick up the New York Times, you check it out online and, and you still see this, this fascination with Trump in the headlines and this or that or the other thing. It's it, is it a little bit newsworthy? Well, maybe. But it, there's also the business thing because Trump still sells papers. And for the New York Times or the Washington Post and the predominantly liberal readership, no problem with that. That's fine. What, what it happens is what they find and what they know is if you've got Trump in that headline and you're writing some story that's nasty to Trump, you're more likely to get people's interest. And so that's why they're, they're still struggling to try to keep Trump relevant. Here's this Washington Post's website. The site had about 66 million unique visitors in October. That's a big number, but that's down 28 percent from last year. And what they're finding is, whether it's the New York Times, CNN, Vox Media, they're, they're seeing, again, a drop-off on this, meaning that people really are starting to miss Donald Trump. At the Washington Post, the digital subscriber growth has begin to, begun to stagnate. There were 2.7 million digital subscribers in October. That's down from roughly 3 million in January. So, you know, what, what's, what's the big difference? Well, what happened? Well, you know, in January, you, you still had Trump that was in office. Now that he's gone, the interest is declining. So they're, they're trying to figure out 
gee, how, how can we get this back up again? How can we rekindle all these things? All that different stuff. But the problem, of course, that they have is that well, you know, Trump is kind of out of the news. And so if you wonder, gee, why is there still so much obsession with the Trump administration? Why are we seeing all these stories about January 6th and things of the like? And yes, there there is some element of newsworthiness to them. There's no question at all about that. But on top of that, it's also because Trump was big business for particularly the liberal news outlets, but Fox News as well, no question about it, but particularly the liberal news outlets where people tuned in to be outraged on a nightly basis by whatever it was that was coming out of the Trump administration. And now that that Trump is gone, there's not as much stuff that's out there to fuel that sort of outrage. It's tougher to get people worked up about the fact that, I don't know, Mitch McConnell isn't signing off on the Joe Biden, you know, two, three, four trillion dollar spending plan. It's tougher to get people worked up about that than it is about the the latest tweet that Donald Trump set out when he was president. And so as a result of that, you've got the media that big media that's ending up, you know, taking taking hits financially and they're trying to figure out, you know, where they go from here. I don't know what the answer is, but again, I think they probably do miss Trump. Don't know if anybody else does, but I think the mainstream media does. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Before we ring in the new year, let's take one last look back. The 10th Annual Wisconsin Sports Awards presents History Made, a celebration of Milwaukee's first title in 50 years and the best in high school, college, and professional sports from across the state of Wisconsin. Join ESPN Wisconsin's Jen Latta and Wisconsin's biggest stars on Sunday, December 19th at 1 a.m. on TMJ4 for the 10th Annual Wisconsin Sports Awards presented by UW Credit Union jockey Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin and Palermo's pizza. I, I have a link to this obituary up on my uh, Twitter account. You can follow me if you follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. And I, it, this is this is one of these things. I hate the phrase gone viral because so, it's such a cliche. But this has, in fact, gone viral. I want to share a portion of it with you. And then I'd like to ask your reaction to it. This is an obituary um, that appeared in the Fayetteville Observer, which I assume is from Arkansas. It's an obituary for a woman named Renee Mandel Corin, and it was written by her son. So I, I've got the entire obituary again. If you follow me on Twitter at Jeff Wagner six twenty, but but here's here's a portion of it. So just bear with me. El Paso, Texas. A plus-sized Jewish lady redneck died in El Paso on Saturday. Of itself, hardly news. Or good news if you're the type that subscribes to the notion that anybody not named you dying in El Paso, Texas is good news. In which case, I've got news for you. The body fertile, red-headed matriarch of a sprawling Jewish-Mexican redneck American family has kicked it. This was not good news to Renee Mandel Corin's many surviving children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, many of whom she even knew and in her own way loved. There will be much mourning in many glamorous locales where she went bankrupt in, McKeesport, Pennsylvania, Renee's birthplace, and where she first fell in love with ham and atheism, Fayetteville and Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina, where Renee's dreams, credit rating, and marriage are all buried, and, of course, Miami, Florida, where Renee's 
parents, uncles, aunts, and eternal hopes of all Miami Dolphin fans everywhere are all buried pretty deep. Renee was preceded in death by Don Shula. He was the coach of the Miami Dolphins. Because she was my mother, the death of Zaftig good-time gal Renee Corrin at the impossible old age of 84 is newsworthy to me, and I treat it with the same respect and reverence she had for, well, nothing. A more disrespectful, trash-talking, trash-reading, talking, and watching woman in North Carolina, Florida, or Texas was not to be found. Hers was an itinerant, much-lived life. A Yankee, Florida, liberal, Jewish, tough gal who bowled him in Japan, rolled him in North Carolina, and was a singularly unique parent. Often frustrated by the stifling conservative culture of the South, Renee turned her voracious mind to the home front, becoming a model stay-at-home parent, a supermom, really just the perfect PTA lady, volunteer, amateur baker, and ha, 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 just kidding. Yeah, just kidding. Um, y'all, Renee, Rosie to her friends, this was a broad who never met a stranger, worked double shifts with Doreen, ate a ton of carbs with Bernie, and could occasionally be stirred to stew some stuff cabbage for the kids. She played cards like a shark. She bowled and played cribbage like a pro. She laughed with the boys until the wee hours long after the last pin dropped. At one point in the 1980s, Renee was the 11th or 12th ranked woman in cribbage in America. And while she could be, while that could be a lie, it sounds great in print. She also told us she came up with the name for Sunoco, and I choose to believe this too. Yes, Renee lied a lot. But on the plus side, Renee didn't cook, she didn't clean, and she was lousy with money, too. Here's what Renee was great at. Dyeing her red roots, weekly manicures, dirty jokes, pier fishing, rolling joints, and buying dirty magazines. She said she read them for the articles, but filthy free speech was really Renee's thing. Hers was a bawdy, rowdy life lived large, broke, and loud. We thought Renee could not be killed. God knows people tried. A lot. Renee had been toying with death for decades, but it was always beating it and running off in her silver Chevy Nova. COVID couldn't kill Renee. Neither could pneumonia twice, infections, blood clots, bad feet, breast cancer twice, two mastectomies, two recessions, multiple bankruptcies, marriage to a philandering sergeant major, divorce in the 70s, six kids, one cesarean, a few abortions from the quietly famous abortionist of Spring Lake, North Carolina, or an affair with Larry King in the 60s. Um, Renee was preceded in death by her ex-boyfriend, Larry King. Um, then it goes on and on and on, as you might expect. Um, a talent, a talented and gregarious gift grifter, Renee M. Corrin eked out her final years of luxury. She literally retired at 62 under the care, compassion, checking accounts, and evidently unlimited patience of her favorite son and daughter-in-law from El Paso, Texas. There will be a very disrespectful and totally non-denomination memorial on May 10th, 2022, most likely at a bowling alley in Fayetteville, North Carolina. The family requests absolutely zero privacy or propriety, none whatsoever, and it in fact encourages you to spend some government money today at a one-armed bandit at the blackjack table or on a cheap cruise to find our inheritance. She spent it all, folks. She left me nothing but these lousy memories, which I, my family of five brothers, my sisters-in-law, nephews, friends, nieces, neighbors, ex-boyfriends, Larry King's children, who I guess I might be one of, the total strangers who all to a person loved and will cherish her forever. Please think of the brightly frocked, frivolous, funny, and smart Jewish redhead who is about to grift you, tell you a filthy joke, and for Larry King's sake, laugh. 
Bye, Mommy. We loved you to bits. Um, then it says, R.I.P., you know, rest in peace, Renee Mandel Corin, May 10th, 1937 to December 11th, uh, 2021. All right, that's the son that, that wrote that. Hardly the typical obituary. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, when you hear something like that, and it was actually longer, I kind of paraphrased some of the stuff, but when you hear something like that, this is the kid writing it about his mom. Do you think, oh my gosh, how inappropriate. She talked about, he talked about her, you know, being broke and going through bankruptcies and, you know, having all this stuff. I think the Larry King stuff was a joke, not sure. But, you know, he he talked about all this stuff. How can you talk about your mom this way? Is that the reaction? Or is it, sounds like the mom really just had a life well lived and the kid is paying a tribute to her. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think? We discuss in a minute. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I really love this obituary. This might be my favorite part. Again, it's written by the son. Yes, Renee lied a lot. But on the plus side, Renee didn't cook, she didn't clean, and she was lousy with money, too. Here's what Renee was great at. Dyeing her red roots, weekly manicures, dirty jokes, pure fishing, rolling joints, and buying dirty magazines. She said she read them for the articles. But filthy free speech was really Renee's thing. Hers was a bawdy, rowdy life, lived large, broke, and loud. We thought Renee could not be killed. God knows people tried a lot. And then it goes on and on. I just, but this, I, I just, you know, uh, I, I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know. Maybe I, when I, when I wrote my mom's obituary after she passed like 11, 12 years ago, maybe I should have been more creative in this because my mom lived large too. But I, I loved, not like Renee did though. I, but I, I loved, I just loved this obituary and I'm thinking, okay, maybe this is kind of the celebration of somebody for clearly she was one of these like a larger than life characters. Holly, um, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Jeff, thank you so much for taking my call, Val. There is nothing wrong with that obituary. <laughs> the lady, Renee, enjoyed life. Life is meant to be enjoyed if you're able. Some people are not. You had a good life growing up in Glendale. I had a good life growing up in the Chicago suburbs. There's nothing wrong with the obituary. And another lady that enjoyed life, if you might remember, Bill Clinton's mother. She loved to gamble. Right. Uh, but the press had to keep that out of the uh, keep it out of the press because it wasn't appropriate. The president's mother likes to gamble, so they had to kind of curtail that down. But that was, that was another lady that enjoyed life, and I know a lot of people in my lifetime, they just enjoy life, the good, the bad, the worst, the, well, you know, some of us we well, right. enjoy life, but well, you know, abso- it can't be gravy, it can't be gravy all the day, you know. <laughs> well, thanks for the call. I guess, Holly, I, I preach, see, I mean, I just kind of look at this, and, and, you know, typically, I mean, there is a standard form to obituaries, and I've written a couple of them, unfortunately, over over the years, and, and it, it's always been kind of, okay, this is what the person did, and, you know, loved by the family members, and here's the surviving family members, all that stuff. Th- this has this degree of creativity that I think is is a tribute to his mom. Let me give you a couple of texts here. 855-616-1620 is the number. Jeff, I think this is a wonderful tribute to the guy's mom. Some of it may have been embellished a little, but to those family and friends that loved her, I think they would love it. He was honest, and it was what he probably wanted. I would say Merry Christmas. Um, now, I do have a text that says, this was not his mom or mother he wrote about. This was a woman who gave birth to him that he must have hated dearly. 
Huh. See, I guess that's not my take on this at all. Um, you know, Jeff, you know, what I think is so beautiful about, he said, Jeff, I love this obituary. We're a great way to remember a loved one. Who says death needs to be remembered with sadness and tears? Sure, maybe at first, but whenever my time comes, I want whoever remembers me to cry, but also to cry, you know, with some laughter. Also, what's beautiful about this obituary, I've never met this woman, yet I feel like he painted such a great image of her. He, the son, knew her the best. I'm guessing by his sense of humor and how he describes her, this is exactly the type of thing she would have wanted if she was still alive. She'd probably be laughing herself and making inappropriate commentary. That's what love looks like. You know, I think you know th- that is. I think one of the that that really is a great point about an obituary like this. You read it, and you feel you know the person. You know, you read it, and you heard my description of of Renee. And I think we we all again, you get this picture of some sort of oversized, larger-than-life woman. I can picture, I mean, I don't know if she was a smoker. I can picture her with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth and a, and a beer and just telling the dirty jokes and stuff like that. I can picture somebody who was, you know, living, living life, you know, large. Jeff, the obituary, how refreshing. I laughed, and, and I bet Mom was laughing at it, too. I, I, exactly. Um, I think that's... That's one of the types of things. And again, I, I, I love the line, you know, she, she's going to be missed in all these places, including these various towns that, um, you know, she went bankrupt in. Somebody says, Jeff, I love it. Lots of tongue and cheek stuff, cheek stuff. She, but she probably maybe it's something that she even had a part in writing herself. Um, that's Jeff. This might be the best obituary ever. Laugh and loud. It inspired me to do this when my folks pass. Well, I mean, I'm not sure that it would be appropriate for everybody's parents. But, in you know, if if you've got a mom like Renee in your life, if you've got a sister or a brother or a husband or a wife like that, it's kind of a nice way to be remembered. I mean, I I always... Um, I always, I always, I always kid around. If if I predecease my my wife Fran, I have no doubt that what she's going to do is she's going to take all the Jimmy Buffett T-shirts that I have amassed over the years, collect them all from Florida, collect them all from Milwaukee, and she's going to put them all out on the front yard, you know, on on a bunch of hangers, and it's going to say something like "Jeff's dead T-shirts for sale" or "Jeff's dead T-shirts for free," and that's going to be kind of that. That would be. For anybody that would look at it and say, "Oh, that's this terrible thing," no, that would be a nice t- that would be a nice tribute. You know, if I can't use them anymore, I would love to have like all these t- these stupid T-shirts that I've amassed over the course of forty years. Um, <laughs> I'd love to have them given away like that. I mean, that's that's the kind of thing you have to have. You have to have, I think, of sense of funeral. Jeff, when I die, I'm not having a funeral. I'm having a funeral. And it sounds like that's what Renee did, too. I mean, I, I love it. It's kind of like, okay, we're planning a memorial, May whatever, um, in a bowling alley in Fayetteville. You know, come on down and just prepare to celebrate life. To me, that is actually absolutely so refreshing. Um, a number of people are asking where you can get a hold of it. The easiest way is if you follow me on Twitter at Jeff Wagner 620 I've got a link to the entire obituary. I didn't read the whole thing. But I, I thought, you know, I just, my, my caption to the Twitter thing was, Renee sounds like the type of gal that I would have loved to sit down and have a beer with. And that's, you know, I guess that's kind of the purpose of an obituary at some things. If you can give a encapsulate somebody's life and you know, kind of bring them to life to people who don't know them, I think you've succeeded. Back with more in just a minute. 
Get your tickets now for Wisconsin's ultimate drive through holiday experience. WTMJ is proud to support Capco's Kids to Kids Christmas Wonderland in Grafton. Enjoy millions of lights, three mesmerizing light tunnels, hundreds of inflatables, a rink for ice skating villagers, a nativity scene, and much, much more. To secure your spot now, text the word CHRISTMAS to the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. It's Capco's Kids to Kids Christmas Wonderland in Grafton. And again, as, as we mentioned yesterday, um, as a result of the windstorm that we had on, on Wednesday, that still, unfortunately, has some people without power, I told you my, my friends who... We're kind of teasing. On Wednesday night, we have dinner, and they say, oh, we never lose power at our house, and they lost power. And um, the, the good news was it came back on about 9 o'clock last night because we were saying, hey, if you want to come over and stay with us, that, that that's good. But came on, so I think they had lost power. They were out of power for probably about 18 hours, maybe a little bit more. But that windstorm that caused all the damage on Wednesday, that really did a number on the, um, the, the, the drive-through holiday experience. It was closed last night. It's going to be closed again tonight. Night. They're working very hard to get it repaired. Um, the plan, as far as I know, is that it will be reopened tomorrow and then the regular schedule. So if you're thinking about going out there tonight, uh, pick another night because they're still working on repairing all the wind damage. Okay, here's it's this is one of those stories that it's it's terrible if it happened, but it also shows again some of the dangers of, of celebrity. And I, I, I never know what exactly to make of this. Uh, Chris Noth is the 67-year-old actor who played the, the Mr. Big on the um, the Sex in the City TV show. And also, I mean, he's done all sorts of other things. And we talked about him earlier this week because they just did the reboot of Sex in the City, whatever they call it now. And, and he dies in the first episode. And he dies after he's riding a Peloton bike. And so this created all this kind of controversy and, you know, about the product placement of Peloton. And immediately after that, Peloton tried to make lemonade out of lemons. And they came out and they had this kind of funny tongue-in-cheek ad featuring him. And he's like, I'm really alive and I'm in good shape and I love the exercise and stuff. Well, that ad has now been pulled because in the last couple of days, two women have come forward and accused him of sexually assaulting them. In the case of one of the women, um, one woman is 40, the other is 31. One alleges that the assault occurred in Los Angeles in 2004, so it's 17 years old. The other alleges that the, the assault occurred in 2015. Um, eh, the, I, I guess he has just responded and generally saying that the, there's no there was no assaults here, that whatever happened happened between us was consensual. The 2004 case is beyond the statute of limitations, so there's really nothing that authorities can do in that regard. The 2015 case, I'm sure, is going to be um, investigated. I, I don't know what the facts are be, behind any of this, but it has been interesting to me because the response immediately, once these allegations were made, Peloton's pulled the ads. HBO isn't saying, you know, what it what it's going to do, but you, you do wonder where this is going to go and it just shows you know for some of these figures that are out there you, you might want to think before you engage in in misconduct if if stuff like this really occurred because um at least in the court of public opinion there's no statute of limitations on bad behavior live from the annex wealth management studio at historic radio city this is the jeff wagner show and now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 
So, Melissa Barclay, have you been following that uh, the Kim Potter trial the, up in Minnesota? I have, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's the she testified the estimate. I think after she testifies, the defense is planning to rest. So, closing arguments, I believe, are going to be Monday, and then probably to go to the jury. I'm after not that. sure. Do you think it was a good idea to have her on the stand? Well, I don't think she had any oh, well, choice. there wasn't any choice. Yeah. I mean, I, I just don't. I don't think there was any choice for people who haven't been following this trial. It, it's it, it's it's an interesting and again it's an unfortunate case. Um, this is this is not the George Floyd case, even though I think you know some people because it happened in the same jurisdiction, some people think of it like that. But this isn't somebody who you know put their their knee on somebody's back or you know restrained somebody for a long period of time. This is an experienced police officer who, with other police officers, is involved in a a traffic stop. The in this case, the victim, I'll I'll use that word, the the traffic stop, it kind of goes bad and it goes bad quickly. And the individual who ends up being shot, he's resist. He is, I think, fairly described as resisting arrest. And and she pulls out what she thinks is her taser because you can hear her on the tapes yelling taser, taser, taser. And then she fires and it turns out she doesn't have her taser. It's her it's her gun. And you can just watch from the reaction. She didn't know she had her gun, which, I mean, I think raises in my mind. is How can an experienced police officer not realize that you've pulled your taser instead of your, your firearm? That I don't know, because I do know in training, usually one's on one side, yeah. the other's on the other. And I believe I read or heard that she had never used her taser before in her entire career. I could be wrong about that, but I think I, I just heard that uh, when they were testifying. But, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how you can just accidentally, because you you practice so much as a police officer, right? You have, like, muscle memory. So I'm not sure. I mean, well, the family of the victim wanted murder charges and and they didn't they they didn't go with that. So she's facing two manslaughter charges, um, first degree manslaughter in every state that they 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 might call things the same, but the elements are a little different. First degree manslaughter means that prosecutors in Minnesota have to prove that she caused the death of the victim while committing another crime, while committing a misdemeanor. So they have to allege that she was committing an underlying crime while she caused somebody's death. In this case, the misdemeanor would be the reckless handling or use of a firearm so as to endanger the safety of another. Huh. With such danger that it was reasonably foreseeable. So they're going to have to prove that she committed an underlying crime. I would not be surprised if she's acquitted of that. The second degree, the other charge is second degree manslaughter, and it alleges that she caused his death by her culpable negligence, which means she caused an unreasonable risk and consciously took a chance of causing death or great bodily harm while using or possessing a firearm. That, that I think, yeah, th- th- that's an easier one. That that's a ten-year felony. The other one's a fifteen-year felony. And I guess when I first saw it, th- this struck me as kind of a second-degree manslaughter charge because I- I'm not sure what you even say in your defense. I don't. Th- I mean, I don't think anybody thought she intended to shoot. And I kill don't think this guy. that's. Yeah, that's not really what. But you know, you you still but, man but, is still dead. Well, well, right. And you pulled a gun. Mm-hmm. I mean, you 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 ended up. You you thought you had a taser yes. in your hand. You pulled a gun and you shot somebody. And I do think that there needs to be some accountability for that. So I guess if you were asking me to make a prediction, this it clearly strikes me as a second degree manslaughter case. And like I say, that that's a ten year felony. The I, I don't know. The ultimate question is going to be when she is convicted. And I, I'm 
I would imagine there's going to be a conviction. The tougher thing is, what do you do, Melissa, if you're the judge as far as disposition? Because this isn't, it's not a George Floyd case. It, it's it's where somebody made a mistake. And, and, and there, there's somebody that's dead. But I, I don't think there was any intent. Nobody argues that if this had been a taser, she wasn't justified in deploying the taser. She just screwed up by pulling her gun instead of the taser. And I guess the question becomes, what what do you do with somebody who's been in law enforcement for 22 years, no prior criminal record, has made a mistake? Somebody's dead, so there has to be some degree of accountability. But does society gain anything by putting her in prison for five years or, or 10 years? And, and if so, what? Do you need to punish her maybe for taking the life? I don't know. It's it's a very difficult situation. It really is. And, you know, like you mentioned, in order to get a conviction in the case, the prosecution has to prove recklessness or culpable negligence. Right. Do we have a law like that in Wisconsin, culpable negligence? Well, Because Minnesota is a little different, I know. Yeah, I mean, we have something that's the equivalent of that, but we call it different something stuff. Different, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and it's so it's, I mean, that, that's why sometimes you have to be a little bit careful because every state has different variations of, of these types of, of things. Like we saw that in the um, the, the case, um, was it in Arkansas just a week ago, mm-hmm. where you, we had the, the three guys who ended up, I don't, was I'm, Oh, the, the, the Aubrey case. Right, that the Aubrey was in, case. Yeah, that was in Georgia. Right, yeah, Georgia. Yeah, 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 Georgia. My, they, they all kind of run together. Just, we have mm-hmm. one of these cases after, after another. another yeah. But right, the, the statutes are all a little bit different as to the elements of intent and the crimes. That, like I say, this I will be surprised if there's not a conviction in this case. But th- this isn't George Floyd. And it's one of these situations where nobody feels good about. You've got a, a, a man that's dead, and he shouldn't be dead. You have a police officer who, in all likelihood, is going to be going to prison for a while her career is over and she's got to live with the fact that she killed somebody for the rest of her life in what was just a a very very bad mistake interesting okay hey when we come back it is the holidays covid is running rampant what does that mean for office christmas parties or holiday parties if you prefer to be politically correct we discuss in just a moment this is jeff wagner on wgmj Last night, we were um, we, we went out to see one of our granddaughters had a in, in goes to Pewaukee High School, and so we went out to see their their Christmas concert. They have all the different choirs that get together, and and actually, <clears throat> it was really outstanding. I was I was impressed. They, uh, there's I don't know. I want to say there's like a madrigal choir, and there's a varsity choir, and there's a mixed choir, and there's a freshman choir. They, they, but it was they performed. It was about an hour show, and they they had some professional musicians that came in as well as the accompanist and the piano. And it it was it was quite good. And one of the things that was so very cool. This is an aside from where I'm going, but it was it's so very cool. This is the second quote-unquote Christmas holiday concert that I've been to in the last week at, at public high schools um, in the area. And at both of these schools, the the songs, there have been some um, secular songs, but there's been some non-secular songs. I mean, there's been Oh Holy Night and Silent Night. And so it's, it's which I, I think, you know, for a while when we used to talk about the war on Christmas, and we haven't discussed that this year, you know, it was that the idea of all these holiday concerts where you were saying, oh, you, you can't have religious songs or religious themed songs at all, which I always thought to be just really, just really 
a bizarre approach to things because, I mean, I think, for example, Silent Night, and I've said this before, is one of the most beautiful songs written, period. And, and even if you don't want to, you know, buy into the religious overtones. It, it's still, I mean, what, what just, what a beautiful song. So in any event, I was just really pleased that we, we heard, you know, the, these wonderful Christmas concerts that included everything from Jingle Bell Rock to Oh Holy Night and Silent Night. And it, it was good to see the diversity. In any event, we're, we're coming, we're coming home and we drove past a couple that I would describe popular restaurants. And in both cases driving past both these these restaurants the the parking lots were empty and they were clearly closed and i don't know this is like 9 15 9 30 at night and my wife who worked her entire life in the restaurant industry says you know the week before christmas the week before christmas in in normal times you know she said we we would have at the restaurant she worked at we we would have been there till 11 or 12 we would be packed with christmas parties or holiday parties or whatever you want to call it you know th- this is like prime holiday party time and the restaurants would have been packed by companies with celebrations and things like that and and clearly the couple of the restaurants that we drove by that were completely closed at 9:15 that they would have been the ones that under normal circumstances would have the holiday parties and stuff but but they're not doing it now I, I thought this was interesting because for many of us that the thinking was that by by this time we would be back to I mean some sense of, of normal. And when you look at holiday travel, the airlines are predicting, you know, travel pretty much back to normal. You've got, you know, people that are going to be going to basketball games and you had eighty thousand people in Lambeau Field. But when it comes to the holiday parties, Christmas parties, whatever you want to call them, it, it, it doesn't appear, at least right now, that, that they are back. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Holiday parties. Are, is your company having one? Has that disappeared? If it disappeared and undoubtedly last year, you know, did you anticipate it was going to be back this year? If it's not back this year, do you think it's ever going to be back? Are these sort of gatherings, are they just going to be put on hold for the next several years? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Because I will tell you, I, I think, matter of fact, I'm looking at a story in the New York Times right now talking about how like a lot of these major companies that had plans for, you know, bringing back holiday parties this year have now just either 86 those plans entirely or put them on hold holiday parties thing of the past 855-616-1620 we discuss back to take your calls here's wtmj's jeff wagner 855-616-1620 which is the acunet mortgage talk and text line like i said we're we're driving back from going to one of the grandkids concerts and we, we drive past a couple very very popular well-known restaurants and it's 9 15 9 20 or whatever and the places are dark there, there's nobody there and this is you know eight or nine days before christmas and my wife who grew up in the restaurant industry she's like man you know you know a couple years ago these are the type of places that would be packed with holiday parties, Christmas parties, whatever you want to call them, and, and there's nothing. And it, it's, I mean, you just wonder, has that really gone? I thought we thought that a lot of that was going to be back by this year, and it sure doesn't seem to me that it is. Marty in Oak Creek. Marty, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Um, Hi thanks Marty. for taking my call. Sure. I think these things are going to kind of 
go away and not come back as strong as they ever were because uh, I found that I don't miss them. There okay. just seemed like you were obligated to go, and COVID, you know, kept you away from them, and now like uh, if i can get out of it i'm going to get out of it well right and from the company's perspective i guess maybe they figure i mean it's always an expense to put it on so if people don't really miss it well okay why 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 spend five thousand dollars holding a holiday party or christmas party if people really if people like you're just saying you're looking for an excuse to get out of it in the first place yeah, yes, no, sir. no. Th- th- thanks for the call. Now, 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 Marty. Some people you realize are going to call, call, call in. They say we just had we, you had the Grinch on there, but I I know what you're saying. Now, thanks for the call. I get it. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Jeff, our holiday party for work has disappeared. Everything else in the building is going um, except it. It's sort of sad, and it makes staff feel, um, you know, that that we are not worth it. I'm thinking it's gone for. Good, and I'm thinking the company is happy, um, you know, not being in the budget. It's not in the budget. <clears throat> Here's a text, sort of off point, and they acknowledge it. They said, Jeff, we were at Brookfield Square last evening. It was dead. I believe the half the stores were closed. Um, then they go on to talk about some that are closed. And, and again, you know, Brookfield Square is another place where you've got a lot of, a lot of different restaurants that are out there that you would have thought would have been packed. Um, again, with with holiday parties and things of the like, um, Jeff, uh, the company I work for was planning a holiday party for after the first of the year. However, they pushed it back for now due to the uptick in COVID again. You know, it, it's really interesting. Um, tomorrow night, we have some, some very dear friends who uh, annually host a, a big holiday party and um I, i'm going to be really curious i mean i i they, they didn't have it last year because of covid it's back this year i i look forward to it it's a chance to not only see these my, my very dear friends but also to, to see people that i don't maybe see once or twice a, a year so I, i'm i'm very much looking forward to going and i really have again as somebody who's vaccinated and has my booster shot and stuff i'm 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 looking forward to going. My guess is almost everybody that's on the guest list has probably been vaccinated as well. But I, I have no, I have no hesitation in going. But I really am kind of curious to see what attendance is going to look like. Will there be people who are are just uncomfortable for this, Jeff? I think COVID was the final nail in the coffin for the office holiday parties. Um, there have been problems with them in the past and stuff like that. But with COVID and with more people not working in the office, I don't think you're going to ever see them back. Certainly not to as large degree. Jeff, I work for a mechanical contractor in Green Bay. No Christmas party this year. Hopefully it will be back next year. We did have a company <clears throat> pick up, picnic this summer. Jeff, uh, two years in a row, no company picnics, no company um, Christmas party. Yeah, I think that's it. And it's, you know, it's not just the, the interesting perspective to me is it's not just from the employees. But again, I wonder Thinking at this from the perspective of people who are in the hospitality industry, if you just want some other indication of how difficult that the whole pandemic has been, there are a lot of bars and restaurants who made a significant chunk of, of change on, and again, hosting things like the, the Christmas party. And now that those Christmas parties have gone away, well, you're in a situation where, okay, you don't need the servers, you don't need the catering, all that sort of stuff. It's kind of the, this trickle-down effect that happens. And um, I just, if, if you drive past some of these restaurants and you wonder, where are, all the, where are all the people? Where are all the holiday parties? I think in large measure, it's because they're not happening, at least not yet. All right, when we come back, John McCure.
We're going to find out what he has on his mind on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around.